0: In a world of what are yous, welcome to the place where the answer is always human. My name is Natalie and you are listening to Some Kind of Brown, a podcast powered by Yellow Jacket Media about mixed and multiracial life, our journeys to find our identities, reconnecting with ourselves and the communities we're a part of, all from a southern girl who's still trying to figure out things for herself. Before I let you guys get over to Constanza, Liana, I just wanted to let you know that our pretty little things have come in the form of stickers and limited edition, for now at least, some kind of brown buttons. If you are a patron or join any time in the month of February, you will be getting the old stickers, which I will not be ordering again, the new sticker a print that was supposed to be a card and turned out to be a print, and a button. If you are not a patron and you would like a button or a button and a sticker, I am selling them in packs. You can check that post on my Instagram. How I'm going to do it is if you go into the link tree in my description on Instagram or Twitter, click buy me a coffee. If you buy one coffee, I will send you the old sticker, the new sticker, and a print. And if you buy me two coffees, which is $6, each coffee is three, then I will send you the entire pack of a print, old sticker, new sticker, and the button. All of this is going to, one, let me know what you guys like, if you want buttons and cool merch things like this in the future, and two, it's going to help me while I try to get our YouTube channel going for March 1st, and all the other projects that I have planned for this year. I just wanted to let you know that those are now available. That's enough for me. Let's go to the conversation with Constanza Eliana. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Some Kind of Brown. Today, I have an amazing guest whose Instagram I have been stalking, and I'm still stalking at this moment. <laughs> but we have the wonderful Constanza Eliana with us. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah. Hi. Happy to be here. Um, happy to be stalked. <laughs> um, really, really appreciate um, the invitation to speak. Yeah, where should I start? Should I just start from the beginning?
0: We can. How about you tell us a little bit about what you do? Because I got really excited. Personally, uh, yoga is one of my favorite things in the world. So I got really excited when I saw your social media. Do you want to tell everyone a little bit about what you do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I have been um, practicing yoga for about 10 years and I have been a teacher um, for about eight years. I've been in the industry for a while. Um, even before I was a yoga teacher, I was volunteering at yoga studios and you know doing work trade because I couldn't afford to take the classes at the affluent studios that were in mm-hmm. my area. And so um, I have a lot of experience and a huge amount of background in the yoga industry. So what I currently do is I do a, a lot of work around decolonization and liberation in the yoga industry very specifically, branching out towards wellness in general as well. Yoga incorporates a lot of Ayurveda and my in my own lineage, uh, being Puerto Rican, I am exploring and reclaiming a lot of the spiritual practices and the wellness practices that come from my people. Mm-hmm. So I am expanding a little bit outside of yoga, but currently that's the focus that I do. And and so what I mean by that is I do a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism work, particularly for spiritual people who are in yoga. And may not truly understand what brown people, black people, people of color are facing when they are entering yoga studios, entering the space, entering classes and workshops, and experiencing a lot of the same systemic oppression that we see outside of the yoga industry. And that work really stems from my own personal experiences, um, having been mentored by a lot of uh, senior level white yoga teachers Mm -hmm. who caused a lot of harm to me and to others. And also with my experience of working behind the scenes at yoga studios, noticing a lot of the racist and prejudiced behavior that they would partake in, and also, quite frankly, a lot of cultural appropriation, which I have been diving uh, really deep into to ensure that Not only do I not participate in the same systemic oppression that I face, but that I not participate in cultural appropriation and that I truly respect the practice for what it is and not just uh, continue white supremacist behavior. So it is multifaceted. It's very complex and very challenging work. But I truly feel a huge sense of responsibility, particularly because I don't want other brown and black people to come into yoga classes and experience the same level of prejudice and racism and judgment that I um, faced for the last 10 years.
0: And that is a really beautiful goal. And I think it's really important what you're doing for a number of different reasons. And I kind of want to break that down and deal with each of those things kind of individually. But I know that from my own experiences with yoga and also having a background in ballet, there's kind of a crossover or a shared prejudice in body types, in not understanding what black and brown bodies look like as far as musculature and how fat is carried and things like that. So I know that that can be a problem when you start talking about yoga and the prejudice as far as individual people's bodies and when different kinds of teachers with different body shapes try to start teaching yoga. Those are the things I've seen. Is that kind of what you've experienced
1: Yeah, certainly when we're talking about yoga in the West, we uh, predominantly practice yoga as asana, which uh, is postures. So a lot of these like yoga flows, vinyasa, hot yoga, all of these things are mainly taught strictly in the physical sense rather than the actual science of yoga, which is multifaceted. Um, And it incorporates a whole lifestyle Mm -hmm. change. And actually looks a lot like a religious practice, a religious spiritual practice, because there's a lot of ritual involved and a lot of ceremony. And that's not what a typical uh, yoga studio owned by a white person would um, teach in their spaces. And so, yeah, absolutely. When we're talking strictly about the physical the industry is dominated by skinny white women. And so it's no surprise that they would really have no cultural competence as to how to really be inclusive towards all body types. And aside from body types, also just uh, the cultural competency around trauma, racialized trauma, Mm. generational trauma, wealth trauma. And so it's not surprising that we would have this huge divide around, you know, who has access to even be practicing even just the physical aspect of yoga. But also when you do show up in the room and you do feel excluded because your body type is different than, you know, the skinny white woman who is in front of you, of course there's going to be a lot of of bias that goes into play there. And quite frankly, when I took my teacher training – teaching yoga, asana, to all different body types was not something that was covered. So even in the traditional sense, which I took a very traditional training, because they don't, they never really focused on asana, asana was just part of it. Even then, we still don't have a lot of inclusion or awareness around the body physicality and how you have to teach slightly differently to have a, a general understanding of different body types in general. So it is something that a lot of people face, particularly brown and black folk, because of who is actually teaching these classes and uh, honestly, just ignorance of um, different cultures and different body types.
0: For sure. And I don't want to get too, too much into the yoga practice because I don't, <laughs> some of you listening might not be familiar <laughs> with some of the things we're talking about, but I will recommend as kind of a starter to understanding the appropriation or the separation that comes from taking yoga out of context there's actually a really cool documentary on netflix about the origins of hot yoga bikram yoga and about how he started his practice and stole it from his teacher who had this flow inside of a religious context it's a big whole thing but if you want to get started understanding that kind of stuff i would recommend starting there but i was very lucky when i started to pick up yoga because i actually saw a lot of bigger girls talking about it and i also had a lot of well a lot a few indian friends who were very mm, i'll say offended <laughs> we're in a safe space they were very <laughs> offended by the separation of this practice from religious traditional religious practices mm-hmm So that's something I try to be mindful of, but access is always a really hard thing as well. I only have the internet. I have chronic pain and chronic illness, so I can't really afford to go take classes and there might not be traditional practices, uh, classes available in the area. So that's really interesting that you brought that up. But in particular, there's something that you said you worked on that really strikes me and I haven't really heard of Outside of a particular context. When you talk about decolonizing on your Instagram, in your journey and your teachings, and also when you were just describing what you do, I've only heard decolonizing in the context of decolonizing native cultures. Mm -hmm. And I'm experiencing my own journey with decolonizing a lot of the spiritual practices and mindsets that go into it with my own journey with reconnecting. And there's something that resonates very much with me. And I haven't really heard people talk about that concept of decolonization outside of the US and Canada, maybe, which I mean, Puerto Rico is mm, complicated <laughs> as far as yeah, belonging to the US for the sake of just being able to finish this thought. It is part of the US. <laughs> But what started you on this journey personally in realizing that you had to do some decolonizing? Did that happen in your own identity or did that happen first in your yoga practice?
1: Yeah, yeah, really great intro to that question. Um, Decolonization has absolutely been a conversation that has been swept under the rug because it has particularly been Native and Indigenous peoples who have had that conversation and dominant culture really does a great job of suppressing that conversation Mm -hmm. to ensure that none of us ever even consider decolonizing in the true sense of the word. So what led me to this is, um, yeah, my own background. I am Puerto Rican, although I was born in the United States um, because my parents were taking their Ph.D. and master's degrees in New York, in upstate New York. I was born there, but shortly after I was born, they decided to move back to Puerto Rico to raise me and my sister. So that's what I know. That's the memories that I have from when I'm young. My first language is Spanish. All the memories that I have are from Puerto Rico. And it wasn't until I moved to the United States when I was about eight years old is when I realized that there was that I was actually othered. By other people, and that looking the way that I did, having curly hair, having brown skin, having um, an accent, or not being able to speak English—that there was something wrong with that. Mm -hmm. And particularly in the Midwest where we were living, it was incredibly hard not to assimilate because I was getting teased at school. I couldn't understand the teachers because I didn't speak English. I was almost held back because they thought that I wouldn't be able to keep up or that I wouldn't be able to learn quickly enough and so I was almost held back. And so experiences like that led me to to assimilate into a culture that was brand new to me, but also into assimilate into the colonizers worldview of what I should be as a brown woman, specifically a woman. That was a hard lesson to learn, but of course you're a child and so you don't know what's happening. You just survive as best as you can.
0: I was gonna say assimilation is a survival technique that people should not feel guilty about if you're going up in an area where your identity is not validated.
1: Exactly, it's not respected You're not seen as a human being You're just seen as this weird foreigner That can't even speak the language, right? And so mm-hmm. a lot of those experiences Led me to doing a number of things Including losing the accent that I had Speaking very clearly and eloquently Making sure that I was as as smart as everybody else Or deemed to be as smart as everybody else And I really pushed aside my own culture Because I didn't, I didn't want to experience a lot of the oppression that I was experiencing. And so it was truly a survival mechanism for me. And it wasn't until I started really... Taking up my yoga practice about 10 years ago that I noticed when I was practicing yoga, I was much more connected to myself. And because I practice a very traditional form of yoga, particularly in Vedanta, you are really reclaiming not just your own humanity, but you're reclaiming that sense of I belong because I exist. Mm. And that's not something that dominant culture had ever taught me, I had to assimilate to what other people thought I should be in order to be deemed as, you know, more capable or be deemed as an expert or be deemed as a professional, like I really had to suppress who I was and my own culture to fit in really. And so the yoga practice was teaching me how to reclaim just loving myself. And then when I um, started getting more involved in social justice and more involved in activism, um, which started when I was 17 years old, but I got really heavy into it around the same time that I was a yogi, I realized that there really was no separation between social justice and yoga. And that a lot of what dominant culture was telling me inside of the yoga industry was that, you know, we have to be positive at all times, you know, good vibes at all times. And we can't talk <sighs> about racism and we can't talk about systemic oppression because that's negative, right? Right and that's challenging. Mm-hmm. If we don't want to go there. And so I really struggled when I became a yoga teacher of how to reconcile my wanting to be involved in social justice versus the, the, the practice that I was actually teaching and also the appropriated practice that I was teaching because I was walking into yoga studios that were telling me, you know, we only we only teach asana here. We don't do the philosophy. We don't do the Sanskrit and any of that. And so it was really hard. But in that process, I would say about five years in is when I started to notice that there was a social justice movement in yoga. And so I started taking a lot of classes, a lot of workshops. And then finally, in 2018, I um, started taking anti-racism courses. And that's when I was first introduced to what it meant to be colonized and Mm. what it meant to decolonize. And so just to kind of wrap it all up in a a bow, (laughs) For me, decolonization really is a a complete mindset similar to the yoga practice where you're deprogramming a lot of these oppressive frames of mind, uh, biases that are really holding you back from seeing blind spots but also that are keeping you in this system of perpetuating white supremacy in every facet. So it's not just government. When you know, we think about colonization, we think, oh, that's a government thing. It's actually a complete mindset. Mm-hmm. First, you have to have the mindset of, of colonization and then you act it out. And that's when we see governments colonizing other countries, other cultures. That's when we start heading into cultural appropriation and thinking that we can take from other cultures without giving anything back or profit off of other cultures without having a relationship to indigenous uh, practices. And so it really does start with a mindset. When I go in and I do courses and trainings and workshops around decolonization, I always have to remind people like this is a mindset that we have all been colonized, no matter what our skin color is. We've all been programmed to center whiteness. We've all been programmed to take more than that we give. And we've all been programmed to think of ourselves as smaller compared to dominant culture. And it's a deprogramming decolonization is really, truly a deprogramming. And coming back to indigenous wisdom, coming back to indigenous practices, and being liberated from white supremacy in in as many ways as you possibly can even though we still live under the boot of systemic oppression, under the boot of white supremacy on a government and systemic level. So it is possible to begin to decolonize on an individual level, and you really have to truly be uh, willing to do that on an individual level Mm -hmm. before we ever start to decolonize on a government level.
0: Because I do have listeners that I interact with and I know for sure are at all different kinds of stages. I do want to kind of clarify when we're talking about decolonization, what exactly that can look like. Because I mm-hmm. I know for me, when I saw decolonize and all of these things, I actually was a little turned off mm-hmm. because it is my approach to to keep from having an us-them narrative, because I don't want anyone to feel like they don't have a place in these conversations that they're being, in turn, persecuted against. And that's how I thought of decolonization. I thought it was this radical... Swing to the other side where the oppressors were now, you know, everyone, whether they had a hand in it or not, or acknowledge that they have a hand in it or not is kind of responsible. But my understanding of decolonization didn't really come until very, very recently when my cousin started teaching me about the spiritual practices of my Cherokee and Choctaw backgrounds. Decolonization is a process that needs to happen slowly. And a lot of people don't realize that the very first step is realizing that decolonization is okay. It is not demonizing necessarily people. Mm -hmm. It is reclaiming and reframing the way you think of things. So for me, that gateway was, I don't believe in the Christian idea of God, so I must be an atheist. But there are these very deeply spiritual practices that I felt very connected with. And I felt very guilty or made to feel like I wasn't intelligent by believing or being drawn to these spiritual practices. And I had to let go of that perspective in order to see the beauty and start reconnecting and healing some of that stuff inside myself. So if you're listening and decolonizing seems like this big intimidating thing, I think that... If we think of it on a smaller scale, find whatever that gateway is for you, whatever you feel drawn to that might not feel like it's understood or encouraged in popular culture. And that might be a better way to kind of start down that road, but it does snowball very quickly Yeah, <laughs> when you realize what it's like.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the things that I can definitely state here is that decolonization is a liberation process. Mm -hmm. And this goes for any identity, any race, because I firmly believe that whiteness needs to be liberated from whiteness.
0: I actually talked about that in a recent episode when I was talking about this kind of spiritual understanding that I came to. Like There are a lot of individual spiritual practices in Europe that are very beautiful Mm -hmm. that have been colonized. Yes, by other Europeans. And I don't think people realize that like old Swedish folklore and spiritual practices, there are ancient Celtic spiritual practices and lore that are very beautiful. And I think that white people, while we're talking about white supremacy, white people very much so have a place in this conversation because their culture has been almost stamped out as well.
1: Right, 100%. We've all been colonized no matter what our identity is. And so when we talk about decolonization, we truly mean decolonize from from this mindset that you have a a claim over somebody else. And it's really a power structure. Mm -hmm. And that's what white supremacy is. It's a, a power structure that says white people are superior and therefore they are allowed to do whatever they want at all times, over everyone else who is below them based on race or ethnicity. And so if we're talking about decolonization in that sense, then it is absolutely whiteness that needs to be decolonized. And so it is also up to white people to decolonize themselves and their thinking and reclaim some of those um, indigenous practices that they have also been divorced from. So this This idea that decolonization is a negative thing or a challenging thing or a thing that we shouldn't touch because it causes separation, actually decolonization by way of reclamation and liberation actually brings you back to your own sense of humanity so that you can also get back in touch with empathy for other cultures that have also been colonized, whether it was your ancestors who colonized it or not, doesn't matter. We all have our own part to play in this process. And honestly, we really don't have a choice anymore. There is no way for us not to have this conversation at this point. Yeah,
0: With the internet and everything right now, there's no way to be an island, even if you wanted to be unto yourself. I mean, unless you absolutely stick your head in the sand and only that itself can only last for so long. But I was recently using the example of goop if you're familiar with it, Mm -hmm. especially the the Netflix series, as really a symptom of white people and white culture looking for something that they already have and they don't realize. So like they're looking for this closeness with the earth. They're looking for this deep spiritual experience with each other. And unfortunately, they're finding it in other people's cultures and taking bits and pieces without realizing the negative effects that that can have on other people.
1: Yeah, and I don't always think that they don't realize the negative effect. I think that they have just been consistently taught that it's okay mm. no matter what. And so that's when we start to go into things like decentering whiteness because brown and black people have always been at the brunt of having things stolen from us and taken from us so that dominant culture can use it for whatever they feel like using it for. And so you're absolutely right. A lot of these indigenous cultures and indigenous practices from Europe have been swept under the rug because we have had such a long history of taking and stealing from brown and black people and so that's all they know and so when they think about oh I need to get back in touch with with nature I know that Native Americans have a history of doing mm-hmm. that. And therefore, I'm going to start studying Native American culture or, you know, I love the vibrancy of India and, you know, the fact that they worship women in India in the form of deities, female deities. And so I'm going to go to India and gain all I can and forgetting that they have their own indigenous wisdom that has also been heavily demonized by whether it's a religious practice that decided to colonize a nation or something else, then, you know, they are also divorced from that. But in the conversation of decentering whiteness, particularly when it comes to brown and black culture, we have also forgotten as brown and black people that the process of us reclaiming our own indigenous practices and wisdom is absolutely our job, not white people's job. Yes. It is absolutely our responsibility to make sure that we center our indigenous practices and not wait Or white America or white people to make it trendy before we reclaim it for ourselves. And that's really what I'm working on for myself in my own culture of Puerto Rico, which is currently colonized by the United States. A lot of our indigenous practices have been quite honestly wiped out and completely erased. And it takes individuals to really start to reclaim all of that and start to seek that out. And it is not a trendy thing to be doing, right? Like, White people don't necessarily want us to be doing that for ourselves until it's convenient for them. And so it's a slow process for us, but I think it is absolutely our responsibility to ensure that if we have African ancestry, if we have, you know, indigenous ancestry, that we start to seek that wisdom out for ourselves because it lives in our DNA, it lives in our bones, and it is waiting for us to reclaim.
0: Yes, I I'm so excited that we're talking about this right now because I feel like this is the right time, if that makes sense, because... It kind of is paralleling my own journey and things I've been talking about on the podcast. We've talked about many times that if you're going to identify with your whatever ethnic background, there's a lot of responsibility that goes into that. So if I say I am a Native woman, I need to be doing everything that I can to be learning and learning the language, learning the culture, learning all this stuff, reconnecting to an actual physical community, things like that. And you don't have to do it all at once because there's so much to learn, but there's a responsibility that comes with your identity. And I'm curious, being from Puerto Rico, because colonization there especially has kind of changed hands, has been extremely traumatic, and caused a, like we were saying before we recorded, a very interesting situation where finding your ethnic background can be very complicated Is it difficult to also find some of these spiritual practices?
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. My, I was in conversation with my mother, and actually, we have these conversations every year, and it is always a hard conversation to have because I am consistently reminded of how good of a job white supremacy does in suppressing and erasing cultures. But essentially, in my own ancestry, it's very hard because. When Spanish colonizers decided to take over the island away from the Taínos, we didn't have a written record of a lot of the practices that Mm -hmm. um, we had. And so it was the Spaniards then that took over those records and decided to write the history for us and and write our story for us. Because 90% of the Taino population was wiped out in on the island it became very, very hard to pass down that indigenous wisdom to the next generation due to assimilation and the violence that was taking place. Also, because the slave trade was a part of the island as well, a lot of the African ancestry that most Puerto Ricans have is also hard to trace due to how violent the slave trade was.
0: Amen to that struggle. (sighs)
1: Yeah, exactly. And so in my own attempts at figuring out, you know, where my ancestors come from, what their race was, you know, if they came from a different country, where was that country, it has been almost impossible to figure that out. And I'm constantly reminded of that, because my mom for her PhD She did her family tree and it was very hard for her to do her family tree because, you know, if her ancestry wasn't European, meaning Spaniard, then there was only so far that she could go. And so it has been incredibly difficult to reclaim some of the ancestry that I have. Unless I do a DNA test, it's going to be very hard for me to even pinpoint like what region or anything like that. And so as uh, somebody who is racially brown, what that means for me is that I truly have no way of knowing just how that identity of being brown really goes back, meaning like I don't have a connection to my Taina roots if that's where I'm from. Uh, my ancestors are from. And I don't have a connection to my African roots because I don't know where in Africa my ancestors come from. And so really what I have is the culture of Puerto Rico, which has survived despite being under an oppressive system, both under Spanish colonization and American colonization. And that resiliency is what keeps me doing this work because we have really not faltered despite persecution, despite genocide, despite violence. We have not faltered in keeping very strong in our Puerto Rican culture And so that's what I that's what I can do for me and my family. I can just really cling to that and make sure that my next generation, if I do decide to have children, that they are very, very, very connected to my Puerto Rican-ness and and my culture as well. So yeah, it's it's hard. I know that some of my ancestors would be considered black in today's uh, terms. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of my ancestors were also white and blonde hair and blue eyed. So knowing that also it makes me very committed in making sure that I stop a lot of this karmic trauma that is passed down from the oppressor but also from the oppressed side that felt like they had to divorce themselves from a culture that they could be killed for
0: absolutely
1: yeah it's it's multifaceted it's very complex and i remain committed
0: there's a lot of tenacity i think and a lot of resilience that needs to be celebrated and acknowledged because hearing what you're talking about unfortunately or, fortunately, depending on how you look at it, is a story that I've heard again and again. I have a friend, Diana, who's been on the podcast, who's from South America, Colombia specifically, who can't find out where her people are from because like many indigenous cultures in North and South America, there are no written records or they're very hard to find, or they come from the oppressor, the people who are colonizing at the time. So it wasn't exactly very accurate. There are people who are trying to revive cultural practices from those documents. I mean, there are things that are lost. There's so much cultural trauma and intergenerational trauma. And I think what's hard is seeing how emotionally affected and how recent some of these things are because I don't think people realize the Indian schools here and especially as you get closer to Canada and in Canada they continued until the 90s there are whole generations of indigenous people who had to assimilate just like we kind of did in a much less dire circumstance for the most part they had to assimilate to survive as well And the repercussions, I don't know how long they're going to last, but what also gives me hope is hearing people like you and Diana, and some of my friends who are in the Alaskan-Canadian area who are extremely dedicated to revitalizing old traditions and finding out about their culture. And these kinds of things, whether you're talking about decolonization, whether you're talking about just your personal understanding and reconnecting can be a very, very emotionally taxing. And I just want to say that it There's something in particular that has been kind of wiped out by Western culture and that's community healing and connecting is crucial to making sure that you don't get so bogged down, so hurt that you can't heal on your own. I know from my encounters with Puerto Ricans, In college in particular, they're very community minded culture as well. How's your experience since especially your mom is having these discussions as well? Have you found that to be bolstering or healing as you've been discovering these things and working through?
1: Yeah, 100%. One of the main things that I talk about when I do trainings around decolonization is the importance of collaboration and community. And I think that's one of the reasons why Puerto Ricans have done such a good job and Boricuas have done such a good job of maintaining a lot of the essence of our um, cultures that were, you know, that the colonizer was trying to suppress and erase because we have stuck to that community aspect of things. And so, yeah, the 100% um, community is such a big part of our culture and that has been what has allowed us to even under colonization and even under American rule uh, has allowed us to continue our, our own practices, our own language um, and our own autonomy even in an oppressive system. And I think Puerto Rico is a really interesting human thing to look at and to study because we aren't like a lot of these colonized islands that have really taken on American culture as their own. Puerto Mm. Rico is very unique in that we still very much cling to our Puerto Rican culture and identity. Even though we fly the American flag at all the government locations. We still are, you know, we still are a Spanish speaking country, even though that was the oppressor's language before America took over. But you know, we haven't adopted the English language as like our main language. We haven't adopted a lot of these American cultures as our own, because we are so resilient and ensuring that a lot of our practices are still kept and still transferred and are still transmitted and passed down generation to generation. And so I think that's why when we saw this resistance happening and this uprising happening last year um, in Puerto Rico, And having it be televised that a million people on the island protested to get this government official to step down, that was a true example of how close of a community and a culture we truly are. And Absolutely. that despite oppression, we are still so willing to ensure that we pass a lot of these spiritual practices down. One of the great conversations that I had with my mother recently was around my great grandmother, Maximina. She actually used to, um, she was known as a medium in her um, town and she actually used to practice Santeria. Ah. And for me, Santeria was always like this um, for me in my mind it was like a colonized spiritual practice i knew not absolutely nothing about it except for its catholic uses like uses of saints and stuff like that and um mm. catholicism just never resonated with me and so i didn't ever study samthidia for that reason and then when i had that conversation with her and she said you know she used to practice samthidia before she moved on to uh converting into christianity and i I thought that was so interesting, and so I recently started looking into Santeria more closely, and I actually realized that it was actually a lot of indigenous and African culture was being masked. Um, Yes, (laughs) covered up by these Catholic saints because of Spanish colonization, they really had to hide a lot of our spiritual practices, we had to hide them and pass them off as Catholic. But the spiritual practices were very, very indigenous. And Mm -hmm. that just kind of blew my mind. And I wouldn't have otherwise known that had I not had my mother tell me you know she used to practice the spiritual practice and it's when stories like that are being passed down that we can really start to look into well what is it that I have been blind to that I may have otherwise like not been willing to look into and how, how did culture mask itself as you know Catholic or Christian or any other religious practice but still kept its essence due to assimilation or colonization and so I just thought that was such a good example of how to reclaim by way of stories being passed down and also intuitive curiosity like I I was very curious about my great-grandmother because I didn't know anything about her. She was born right around the time that slavery uh, had ended. And the fact that she was a medium was really interesting to me. And the fact that, you know, my grandmother, who I never got to meet, also was a part and and living in Puerto Rican society where American culture had deemed it illegal to talk about liberation. Yes. That for me was such an eye-opening thing to find out because I could see then why when I moved to the United States, my own mother would say, no, you can't put up the Puerto Rican flag on your bedroom window because we don't want other people to see that. Mm -hmm. And That is a direct reflection of how, you know, that persecution that happened in Puerto Rico, where you could literally be killed or put in jail for talking about liberation and putting up your Puerto Rican flag, how that is passed down from generation to generation, but also how that can flip on a dime and you can be so proud to hang up your Puerto Rican flag because you are so committed to your liberation and to your people's liberation. And so it's just human behavior is so interesting in that way. But that's a part of decolonization process as well is, yes. you know, being willing to go against the grain, being willing to go against what oppressive systems would otherwise want you to do. And, you know, it's not easy, but it's it's so incredibly necessary.
0: Yeah. And if you're not there, that's OK. Just know that there are plenty of us out there that are on the journey or that will definitely lend you support if you're ready to take those kinds of steps. But I laughed when you started talking about Santaria being a disguise for cultural beliefs, because I actually was Catholic and was a Catholic youth minister. Oh. Uh, well, for a lot of reasons. But <laughs> so <laughs> I actually was very interested in Santeria and also a lot of voodoo spiritual practices Mm -hmm. out of Haiti and how they were kind of using these Catholic lenses to still practice their spiritual beliefs. Because I was like, how in the world are they doing these two things? And that's just how my journey went. And I got there eventually. So <laughs> those of you I'm 28, it, sometimes it takes people a while and where you grow up and having people talking about those things can also be a big factor. I didn't have those people until way longer in life and my parents actually encouraged the more colonized view of myself and the world. So uh, learning these things and these practices, I think is very exciting as someone who has it has seen. It's very exciting to hear about other people go through those things as well. Every time you talk to someone who's mixed or talk to someone who's going through the process of decolonizing, it's just so freeing and also validating. It's like not only are your personal experiences valid, the person you're talking to's experiences are valid. These feelings, these These yearnings for things that you're kind of taught are like woo-woo or out there, which is a term that I've used and I really want to stop using because it kind of demonized a lot of indigenous cultural practices. And I didn't even realize. It kind of trains you to look at these things as not scientific, not correct, not the way we, we do things. And that's very harmful, I think. But Uh, I don't know, it's very edifying to hear that there are people talking about these things, because to me, it has the feeling of a bridging cultural revolution, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's incredibly liberating when you take that on for yourself, even though it really touches at the shadowy parts of you know, society or ancestry or anything like that, it actually is really liberating to just have the knowledge of historical facts and just have the knowledge of what our people have actually gone through, whether they have been oppressed or been the oppressor. And when you truly stop demonizing a lot of these indigenous wisdoms, then you can truly start to reclaim in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to. And so by way of me practicing yoga and truly believing in it and truly studying it for what it is, that has allowed me to also move to a place where I am much more willing to reclaim my own indigenous practices because I have seen the power of practicing something that is so rich in its indigenous wisdom that I am now much more ready and able to do that for myself and my culture than I ever was before, because I was operating out of a colonized mindset. Mm -hmm. So it's incredibly powerful. And it is it is an act of social justice and to liberate yourself. Absolutely.
0: I think you mentioned earlier, you said intuitive curiosity, correct? Is that the term you used?
1: Yeah, yeah. Just being uh, really curious about certain things and listening to that intuition and that pull to do more research Mm -hmm. or to study it or to pay more attention to it. I call that intuitive curiosity because it can lead you to a place that you wouldn't have otherwise been led to had you not had that instinctual pull to be like, Hmm, that's interesting. I wonder what that's about and really go after it.
0: I actually take that term. If you don't mind, I love not take, share that term. (laughs) Yes, It's a very, It's a very apt description because that's something I've experienced as well. There are things like that when you allow yourself to be curious and follow that curiosity. I think that would surprise people. You always have these things and I'm a very intuitive person. I just, if I feel like doing something, I do it. And so like even talking to you and things happen where I talked to you and found you at a time where I was open and this conversation was ready to be had at least on my platform hearing that and hearing it used as a term is something that just feels right and resonates with me and it makes me very excited because I hope that people are listening are somewhere at least on that journey as well if they've been listening and following my journey I don't know I all of this is very exciting to me I get (laughs) I'm easily excited as well but yeah
1: (laughs) No, but I think it's just, it goes to show like this is the perfect time to be having these types of conversations, but also a very unique time that we are even able to have these conversations because... Mm -hmm. For so long, brown and black people have had to, you know, have these conversations either in, you know, somebody's basement and in a very low voice or not at all, because we've been so afraid to be persecuted for even talking about these things and having the curiosity to look into a lot of these things. And so now with social media and now with the Internet, we are in a perfect time to be able to come out of the woodwork, come out of hiding, and really have these conversations on a much bigger platform so that other brown and black people can also feel validated, seen and heard, but also mm-hmm. give that feel like they have permission to be having conversations like this in their own circles and also be much more public about it. I think it's it's just it's a beautiful time and I am constantly thinking about my grandmother and my great-grandmother who they couldn't have even imagined that this would be possible for me, you know, a descendant of brown and black people. To be able to speak about it in such a public way.
0: Uh, My friend who I met through the podcast said something that I think you might resonate with as well. She said that perhaps we're the generation that our ancestors were waiting for and hoping for. That is beautiful and it also puts this level of responsibility because we do have these freedoms to explore these things, to do this kind of work, to kind of rectify the harm that was done to our ancestors, to our people, to the land, to ourselves through all these things and having these conversations, being able to have it on this podcast and also hearing these things from you that you're teaching it and that you are interested in starting a podcast makes me very excited because I'm just one person and I only have my story. The more people who join in talking about it, the more we can start kind of reclaiming and the more people will have permission because they'll see people from all different backgrounds being able to claim these old practices that have been lost.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's going to take all of us. So the more vocal we choose to be and the more we choose to step into speaking up and talking about it and having these conversations, the better it will be for everyone. And eventually it won't be a challenging topic. It'll just be, Mm -hmm. you know, another conversation at dinner. Right. And that's where we want to move to is making it the norm, not the exception.
0: Uh, And I'm excited to get to that place. I don't know if we'll get to that place in my (laughs) lifetime, but hopefully so. But I love this conversation. I, I love that feeling when you when you can talk to someone and leave the conversation with that like fire in your chest. That's always a good feeling. (laughs) To me, at least.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. agree.
0: So where can people find you? Because you Again, I love that you're talking about this and uh, another person for people to be looking for. Someone who's doing a lot more than me is very necessary for people to be following.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I'm mostly on Instagram and social media. So people can find me under the handle at Eliana dot So that's C-H-I-N-E-A. And they can also find me on my website where my Instagram is linked. So my website is embodyinclusivity.com. And all of my work is placed on there. A lot of the conversations that I have with brown and black women specifically are on there by way of um, different summits that I partake in and panels that I host, but also a lot of the workshops and trainings that I do are also located on there. So would be happy to have your listeners check
0: that out. So much good stuff. And I will try to link all of that in the show notes as well if people want to check you out, which I highly recommend. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. My mind is spinning. I'm in a very happy place.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. I always love talking about this stuff. So hopefully it was good for everyone involved.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode you can find me on instagram twitter and facebook at some kind of brown and i would love to interact with you over especially on instagram you can also join us on patreon for ad free episodes after interview debriefs before the episode comes out stickers t-shirts and more Another great way to support the podcast is to subscribe wherever you're listening and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Podchaser to help our brownish family grow. You can find the links to everything and more in the show notes through the link tree on my social media bios. All of your support is what keeps this podcast going. Thank you to purpleplanet.com for the use of their song Love Life, and I'll see you later with some more Shades of Brown.